So I was looking at Docker Java library. I was clearly in the main of Docker and uh, I was looking for a solution and I noticed reference from something called test containers. And uh, I was like, hmm, we develop our testing library with Docker. Now I'm looking at something for Docker, mentioning something, something, test, something. So I should definitely have a look. And uh, I had a look and I get so excited because uh, that library, that open source library was doing basically the same. We don't need to spend time recreating this thing, plus also we could start contributing. I'm Sergey Gorov, co-founder and CEO of Atomic Jar. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lampart, and today how Sergey Gorov started down the path to make integrated testing simpler and easier. All this and more on Code Story. Sergey Gurov grew up in a small city of only 100,000 citizens, which is huge compared to some cities. He grew up in Siberia, in the cold part of the country. His personal record for how cold it was during his time there was negative 53 degrees Celsius. And a funny story, on that same day, he had to go out into the weather to the post office to pay his internet bill so he could play video games at 16 years old. His favorite game at the time was Might and Magic, which is also 50% of Russia's favorite game as well. The cold weather was partially the reason he got into tech, because he could do it at home indoors. But other than that, he was a regular kid who liked to skateboard and play guitar in his band. Through a chance discovery in Docker's ecosystem, Sergey discovered an open source test container library and realized that the approach he was taking to test containers was out there in the wild. He was invited to be a co-maintainer to the open source library, which would eventually become their current company today. This is the creation story of Atomic Jar. Atomic Jar is the result of five years of talking uh, with Richard, the creator of a project behind it, about the idea, or maybe not five years, but some years, uh, talking about the idea of starting a company. because. When you work on open source project, uh, you could actually be working on open source project for many, many, many years. And it was the case for us with Richard. Uh, and Richard, Richard Norris is uh, my co-founder and the creator of Test Containers, uh, open source testing library, integration testing library, with a very strong focus on developers. For five years, we've been working on this library on our spare time. Some of our employees were supporting the idea of uh, just working on this library. So, we kind of had no issues with getting time to work on it. Uh, we also have lovely families who let us do things outside of our work hours. Uh, and we are extremely grateful for that. Five years ago, uh, working at Zero to Round, DevTools company in Estonia, um, and uh, we had our own library uh, that was letting us do testing uh, with Docker. So basically the idea was uh, like at some moment, moment we realized that Okay, why would we use, let's say, Docker Compose for us, our testing needs? Because it's declarative, we cannot achieve everything we need. We just want to have more control. And after all, we are developers. We would rather prefer to code our test setup. 
Five years ago, Docker was something different. Five years ago, Docker wasn't something that was on everyone's machine and in every production system. It was rather something new and something people started to discover, but it started gaining some popularity as a dev tool, uh, something you would use during the development and maybe CI, CD stage. I was advocating Docker as a solution for testing, and um, we just ended up with the idea that since Docker exposes its API, we could just talk directly to Docker. We could start containers, stop containers, uh, restart containers, connect them and everything, just by talking to Docker API directly. The idea was fresh. There weren't many solutions out there, so uh, our library was inner source library that we just created internally to test one of our Java agents. And eventually there is this really cool feature on GitHub where you look at some issue and then you see cross-references from other repositories. And there was a reference from, uh, so I was looking at Docker, uh, Docker Java library. Um, so I was clearly in the main of Docker and uh, I was looking for a solution and I noticed reference from something called test containers. And uh, I was like, hmm, we develop our testing library with Docker. Now I'm looking at something for Docker, mentioning something, something, test, something. So I should definitely have a look. And uh, I had a look and I get so excited because uh, that library, that open source library was doing basically the same. Uh, and we were so aligned on the implementation that I just quickly, quickly rushed to my manager and I told him like, okay, what's the point of us having our own inner source library if there is one that is open source and uh, like we don't need to spend time recreating this thing, plus also we could start contributing. We decided to uh, backport some of the features that we had uh, in our internal version to test containers and I started contributing more and more and eventually I was so noisy with my pull request, I believe that uh, Richard just invited me as a co-maintainer. He just realized that Docker could be a really great solution for just unifying your testing setup. And it was indeed so. Let's dive into the MVP a little more. So you mentioned Docker, you mentioned their API. Tell me how long it took to build and what sort of tools you used outside of those couple of things to bring it to life. Initially thought that it's gonna take months or two uh, and then you, you can call it done because it's so trivial, right? You just uh, implement start container, you implement stop container, and you can you can call it library, you can call it solution. Um, and the MVP was exactly uh, like, like that. You, you could just start containers, stop containers, uh, and it was a facade uh, so that you don't, like you didn't need to know exactly how Docker works but instead you could just code something and uh, it would work with any Docker image uh, available. And um, it was a very simple solution. It was uh, framework agnostic, so you didn't have to use, let's say, Spring specifically. And here I'm talking about Java, but later we gained some um, traction from uh, other communities and we uh, got our versions in other languages, but the initial ver version and the most popular one right now is the Java version. So. You didn't have to stick to uh, any particular framework. Uh, you could use the library with any framework you want. And it was as simple as just coding your containers because writing code is something that every developer knows how to do. And nowadays we would say that it was a low code solution to integration testing with Docker. But back then nobody was talking about low code and it wasn't term at all. So with, with any MVP, Right, you have to make certain decisions and trade-offs about 
you know, what you're going to cut in the short term and what sort of technical debt maybe you're going to take on just to get a solution working. Tell me about some of those decisions and trade-offs you had to make and how you cope with them. Uh, that was made back there and uh, it still remains relevant and it's still the best decision that the project made, I would say, was to never, ever, ever leave the domain of integration testing. So it was actually stated in Projects Readme that test containers isn't uh, something that would let you create your own Kubernetes, let's say. It's not a general uh, purpose library that would provide you an interface for starting and stopping containers for any use case. And the use case was always strictly defined, integration testing. The sweet spot for testing, uh, especially in the era of microservices, we could, of course, uh, start adding more layers and we could consider, let's say, providing end-to-end -end testing or system testing solution on top. But it wasn't the goal and it would just distract us so much that we would never deliver what Task Containers is today. And uh, I believe it was a great decision, uh, initial decision for the project to stick to the same parting that would let us uh, improve and would let us add certain features that otherwise would require multiple routes uh, depending on the use case. One of such features actually was something that makes test containers unique. For any testing library, especially those that require external resources, starting any resource isn't the most important task, I would say. The most important task for testing libraries is to destroy these resources once you're done with your test. The way test containers uh, worked back then is that it would just register a shutdown hook um, and at the end of your test session, it would destroy everything. There was already great uh, improvement as compared to manual resource management, but later we discovered that sometimes, let's say you're running your test on Jenkins and then you forcibly stop, stop the job. Jenkins would send um, sig kill to Java process. And when you receive this signal, none of uh, the shutdown hooks will get executed. So you start containers, but then uh, your process dies. There is no way we could uh, inject ourselves into the termination process. And uh, it, it led to uh, dangling containers. Um, and obviously this isn't something you would want to see on your CI CD systems, especially with some tools that claim that they simplify things for you. But then you discover, especially when someone comes to you, someone who maintains the CI uh, CD system and tells you, hey, why do we have tens of containers running on this node? Because I don't see any activity from Jenkins. And you realize that, okay, you have this problem. We started fighting with the problem and um, instead of us detecting the shutdown, we could just start additional container for every session that you run, every test session that you run, that would record every container you start. And if it loses the connectivity with your main process, then it will just start destroying everything. The hardest problem in any software uh, development is to find a name for something. And uh, Richard had this great suggestion that, why don't we call it Ryuk? And uh, for those who don't know, Ryuk is the name of um, I think it was God of Death from Death Note um, anime or manga. The idea of uh, Death Note manga was that there was a book that accidentally, um, God of Death, uh, he accidentally dropped this book and then a human being uh, picked it up and then was able to kill everyone who, uh, who gets written into this book. So if your name got added to uh, the book of Death, to the Death Note, then eventually something will happen to you. 
The domain is a bit depressing, but on the other hand, uh, when it comes to containers and when it comes to forcibly killing containers, it was the best possible name because it was doing exactly that. We would just record everything to this uh, sidecar container and we never ever 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 since then had an issue report that there are dangling containers because no matter what happens to the main process we would still have this container running that would eventually clean up everything so from that point then how did you progress the product and and how have you matured it and i'm interested in in how you went about building your roadmap and deciding okay this is the next most important thing to build I guess for Task Containers, the open source project, uh, what was really successful is shortly after joining the project, um, since I had this feeling of excitement of discovering the project, I started doing conference talks and I started just presenting at various uh, and ended up presenting at biggest Java conferences, talks about Task Containers, first to let more people know about its existence, but uh, secondly to receive this feedback about uh, how it feels to use the library. And of course, when I started, nobody knew about uh, the library. It, was, it wasn't that popular uh, because I got lucky joining it quite early, but eventually uh, we started seeing more and more people attending talks, not because they wanted to learn about the library, but they wanted to hear updates. People were basically, they were forming our roadmap because we were feedback driven. Sometimes you need to ignore feedback because you know that you could deliver something that would make it obsolete. But on the other hand, especially at early stages, feedback is the most important because that's exactly what would help you understanding your product. And for DevTools, uh, I guess that's something unique where you understand your product so well because you are a developer yourself. Everything your users are telling you as opposed to, I don't know, selling some path matching application. And imagine not having any paths and then developing this application and none of the feedback would explain you what it actually, how it actually feels using your product. But with DevTools, uh, it's exactly the case, 100% match. It was great because um, we, didn't, we didn't need to invent features. We just, we, we had to incorporate the feedback and then uh, the library uh, became very feedback driven. That makes sense. Uh, uh, builds a much better product when you're building for people that are telling you what they want, right? But I get your point too, where you kind of, sometimes you have to listen and sometimes you have to interpret what people are really trying to ask for. So let's switch to team. So how did you go about building your team? Is it is it you and your CTO and, and that's it? Or is there more people? For all these five years, um, we were working on our spare time and we had these conversations like, okay, there is so much adoption, like biggest companies in the world are using task containers. I mean, you think about it, like Red Hat, VMware, IBM, Google, Netflix, uh, Spotify, they all, one way or another, are using task containers. We even made it to Google Cloud Next Keynote where task containers was presented as the solution for testing before you deploy your services to Google Cloud. The library eventually became the go-to solution for integration testing, at least in Java space. Now we also have very active versions in Golang, Python in uh, Node.js and .NET. In fact, we have three versions in, in .NET, so we need to consolidate them. I guess that's an indicator of success, not of something that went wrong. We also had this question, should we monetize or how could we monetize? The question was uneasy because we all had our full-time jobs and uh, when I say we all, I'm also referring to Kevin Wittig, 
who joined us as third maintainer of Test Containers Java and uh, who is currently with us at Atomic Jar, but back then it was just three, three of us uh, core maintainers of Test Containers, uh, Java and the community. And we had our full-time jobs. We were pretty happy with them. Um, I got my job at uh, Pivotal and later uh, VMware acquired Pivotal. Richard was at Skyscanner. Kevin was doing his PhD in blockchain. And imagine having these jobs that would not motivate you to start your own thing because actually they're demotivating you because you think that everything is stable and starting your own company, uh, your own company would be something unstable. So I guess the trigger was uh, my resignation from VMware after uh, Pivotal's acquisition. It was a bit hard for me to adopt to this uh, large company. Pivotal was I know, 10 times smaller, I think, maybe 20 times smaller. Uh, eventually, I just decided to uh, resign. And what I did, I did an open call, basically. I just said, I announced on Twitter that, okay, I'm, I'm leaving VMware. I have no idea what I'll be doing next. Um, I was part of their reactive team, uh, completely unrelated to task containers or anything like that. Uh, so I expected to receive a job I don't data stocks, Microsoft, maybe some other company uh, who would want me to do something reactive. But I did mention that if you want to talk about task containers, please reach out. And I thought that maybe some company who would want such a large community would reach out and offer uh, me to start kind of team, a small team uh, inside their company. But what happened next really surprised me. Uh, one of our users, um, who also happened to be a business owner and angel investor, he reached out to me and said, Hey, I have some decent amount of money, uh, just to not uh, tell exactly, but like a decent amount of money. Have you have we considered starting a company for task containers? Because I just successfully migrated all my projects to task containers. This was so good. I see the value, I see the potential. We weren't sure that all our ideas would, would click with him, but actually they, uh, they did. Uh, we started sharing some of uh, our concepts we initially had. Uh, we're still not talking about our product. Our product will be announced very soon, but uh, we just shared some of the concepts and uh, he liked them so much that he said like, okay, like I want, like, I want you to start the company. I want to be your uh, first investor. I want to be your angel investor. And this is how we started thinking about this for real. We started thinking like, okay, we can actually start the company. And uh, this is how we ended up jumping from uh, one angel investor who was willing to uh, invest into, to be uh, later named Atomic Jar, to closing a seed round with uh, one of the best seed investors for DevTools. Um, luckily, we took a bit more time to just uh, talk to people and explore uh, the market. And uh, we weren't sure whether we should start small or big uh, or whether we should just bootstrap our business. But I think we ended up the right decision, the decision of closing our seed round. Let's flip to scalability. And it's always interesting to ask this question in light of you know the, the tool that you've built. But did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or were you fighting this as you grow? Because of the correct obstructions, uh, task containers is something that would scale from day one because it is generic, uh, it helps with different kinds of uh, tasks, and then it would not force you to certain um, like to certain decisions, uh, and it's a very flexible library, unless this is something that we would definitely not advertise doing. And that's an inter interesting thing. Uh, we already talked a little bit about uh, 
some feedbacks that uh, projects receive, but sometimes this feedback may not be considered uh, for good reasons. And uh, for example, in case of task containers, usually people People, people are used to, developers are used to fixed ports. They would just expect, I know, Postgres running on localhost 5432. And it kind of works. But when you think about all these conflicts you, you would get when you run multiple tests on the same machine, especially on CI machine, when you think about various ways of, ways of running Docker, and when Docker may not even be running localhost, you realize that, okay, it's not that easy to run things on fixed ports. And this is why test containers from day one was enforcing random ports. And we were also recommending to obtain the host and not just hardcode local host. Because this is exactly what makes test containers uh, so bulletproof, I would say. Like uh, people don't need to worry that Docker will change something or uh, their colleague that runs uh, their tasks on I don't know, Windows machine um, or maybe you're running it inside some Kubernetes-based uh, uh, CI-CD pipeline and then you don't even have local Docker, you have Docker running as a sidecar pod. All these scenarios would work with test containers. But if you start making certain assumptions, let's say fixed ports, then these assumptions will break. And this is exactly uh, part of the feedbacks that we had to not ignore, but we had to educate our users why using fixed ports isn't the right decision. And now is uh, last week's or week, week before the last week uh, when Docker announced that um, they are changing their licensing um, uh, licensing uh, agreement uh, and that uh, large corporations will have to pay for Docker. There was uh, this trigger for some who decided to explore alternative ways of running Docker on their machines, especially on Mac and Windows. And some of them would not do the port forwarding, something that Docker Desktop does really well and it actually explains the pricing of Docker Desktop. It makes running Docker on your machine effortless. But if you want to go with uh, more manual route where you start Docker, where you use Docker with let's say Minikube or some other tool or Docker machine, then certain features will not be available and port forwarding is one of them. And test containers works just fine if you run it with uh, Docker that runs somewhere while some tools started failing that we're expecting things to run on localhost because we got used to localhost. And it's just nice to know that this decisions helped us to keep the library working even when some major changes are happening. Well, well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built at Atomic Jar with test containers, what are you most proud of? Community. Um, I can easily answer this one. Community is what makes me most proud of because um, partially because I invested myself into building this community. Uh, we all did, but um, at least I know that I contributed to this and I'm happy to see the outcome. But also our community is amazing. I would say Test Containers community is one of the best open source communities out there. Um, not because I'm involved, uh, because I'm also a user of Test Containers. I've been user of Test Containers this whole five years. I was always developing it based on the feedback I was providing to myself because I was using it at companies I used to work. Because 
Zeratround uh, was DevTools company, but between Zeratround and Pivotal, I think I changed like, I don't know, a gazillion of jobs. And uh, these jobs weren't DevTools jobs. So I was just using it as a regular developer. And um, just seeing our community growing and uh, what's even more exciting, seeing our community contributing to the community, let's say, by doing talks, by uh, writing articles, by sharing their feedback on Twitter, was extremely helpful to the project. But also, it's the best reward for any open source maintainer to see the community uh, growing and to see it being healthy. Because I know many projects, that, like many open source projects, that are amazing projects, but they struggle to, uh, to get the community. They had users, yes, but community is something different. Community is what makes a project um, healthy, I would say. And we currently see developer advocates from other companies such as Elastic, from Google, from uh, many other companies uh, talking about task containers because they see it as a value for their, uh, their communities. And Task containers becomes sort of a glue between various communities, and then you will see people from, um, I know, task containers is actively used in Spring community, but also in Quarkus community. And sometimes you see people helping each other who are not using the same from framework. I would say who are using frameworks from completely two opposite, um, I know, corners of the ring. But uh, on the other hand, they're just happy with the same tool and it's something that unites them. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. It's not like we never made uh, any mistakes. <laughs> In fact, when you when you made more than one, uh, it becomes extremely hard to pick one, uh, I would say, um, or even recall them. I would continue if I may on uh, the community point that uh, eventually we grew so fast that given the amount of core maintainers, we couldn't catch up with the issues and pull requests we were getting. And it created this feeling that project isn't evolving as fast as it should. On the other hand, we were simply struggling to just do the pull uh, to do the reviews for these pull requests that are coming from the community, not from core maintainers, because we are usually very well aligned between each other and we didn't need to spend time on, I know, agreeing on implementation details or as a vision. While external contributors, uh, sometimes you just need to align with them because you want to have your product consistent. You don't want to see something that. Uh, I know, so inconsistent that it's really hard to work on it because you need to keep the context of every piece you work on. And uh, last week, there was uh, this famous commit from uh, HashiCorp's uh, employees or HashiCorp employee um, to uh, one of their tools, uh, I believe it was uh, Terraform, saying that due to um, lack of uh, time from uh, maintainers or something like this, uh, they had to temporarily suspend uh, acceptance of external contributions to focus on uh, maintains of the tool. And uh, I know that some, some community members, they were like, oh no, something is happening to Terraform, what will happen to Terraform, what should we do? On the other hand, uh, and I was of course defending uh, Terraform and HashiCorp because I know that they did it for a very good reason. When you have a an extremely popular project, 
you need to be careful because if you start accepting more and more features, then your existing features, your core, fun core functionality may start struggling because it still requires some attention, still requires some maintenance and um, you would not want to add one feature per release if you don't have time to just polish the old ones. And um, I clearly understand their decision and uh, when I started defending their decision in one of uh, the chats uh, I was involved into, uh, I just asked them, but are you unhappy with Terraform? Or how happy are you with Terraform? The answer was, the answer was I'm super happy. I'm really enjoying the tool. I have no issues with the tool. So my next question was, why would you then think that something bad is happening to Terraform? Why don't you think that they just took their time, given that the tool is currently um, solid, does what it should do, uh, why don't they t take time to just polish things, to rearrange, rearrange some code maybe, to prepare something uh, for the next 10 biggest features uh, you would want them to build. And uh, it kind of helped that person uh, understanding that the actual motivation be behind that uh, warning wasn't that something bad is happening with Terraform, just it is an indicator of success. And uh, as we know, even uh, when you, let's say, when you're a super popular project, uh, you may even want to limit number of users uh, at sign up when you start your product, just because you don't want to, uh, you want to satisfy them. You don't want to have 1 million unsatisfied users. You want to have 10,000 extremely satisfied ones. And uh, when it comes to open source projects, obviously you cannot limit your users, but you, what you can do, you can limit the inflow of uh, issues, features, uh, and contributions to keep your product solid. That makes total sense. I've had um, Mitchell Hashimoto on the show, and I think everything that comes out of HashiCorp is pretty solid. So I agree. Anything, any assumptions you make there about a tool um, coming from those guys um, could be dangerous. <laughs> so what does the future look like for your product and for your team? I just realized that I didn't answer your question about the team size because it's not just me and Richard, otherwise I would not be a happy CEO because uh, when you start a company, no matter what company is, the most important task, day one task, day minus one task is to start hiring. We have the best community out there, so we were able to hire six employees uh, from the community. Uh, we knew them and they are amazing engineers because they aren't just users. There's someone who were building extremely good software with the right tools, where test containers being one of them, but that's how we uh, learned about them. And um, we are currently a team of eight, uh, with six people already uh, started and uh, two more joining us in October. And by the end of the year, we plan to be a 10 to 12 uh, engineers. Uh, we are deaf to startups, so we start with engineers, purely engineers, because it makes the most sense. Of course, we have some really, really big dreams, but what we want to do, we want to, uh, we identify the problem uh, and the problem with modern testing is that it still belongs to not the right people, I would say, and I don't want, don't want to underestimate the value of, let's say, QA teams or someone who spends their time, like 100% of their time writing tests, let's say. But I believe that testing something that belongs to developers. We are uh, big advocates of shift-left testing, testing that goes back to developers because it originated at developers and uh, like it should, it should be there. 
developers should be writing tests. And we were struggling with lack of tooling. Uh, we knew that, let's say, integration testing was the right, right thing to do, but it was really hard to do because uh, starting all these environments, configuring them, it was an extremely challenging task, uh, especially before Docker. So now what we want to do, we just want to give testing back uh, to the hands of developers. And uh, we want to make sure that since developers are quite picky species, uh, like you would not just give them any tool, you just need to make sure that the tools you're giving to them are really, really good. So that they start using it, they, uh, they get used to them, and then they would never stop using them. So uh, this is why it's important. This is why some attempts to uh, reimagine and testing for developers uh, have failed because I don't think they really understood what developers want. And to, to give you an example, um, there are many startups um, that uh, are and were focusing on the idea of recreating production environments for testing. And while it sounds like something that developers would want to do, Eventually, they start realizing that, okay, to test their services, maybe they don't need their whole production environment to just run one test that would verify that this database returns this data and that uh, this REST endpoint returns the correct JSON. And the turnaround time is uh, extremely, extremely high. Like, you would need to wait for, I don't know, tens of minutes sometimes uh, to just wait for these environments to be created. So they started pushing it back to uh, CI uh, and CD environments, and it created this uh, gap between software development lifecycle, where you code something on your machine, and then you um, test your service, and when you submit it as a pull request, let's say, or you deliver it. And this, ga uh, this gap creates um, performance degradation, like for developers, their performance degrades because Either they are not testing at all, which uh, later will be um, spotted during the pull request stage, or maybe they are testing, but then they need to wait for tens of minutes for their uh, test to finish. And um, especially if you're Netflix, let's say. If you're Netflix, you would not try to start the whole Netflix just to test your movie catalog service, right? Because they have, like at this stage, I don't know, hundreds of millions services, I think ballpark estimate yeah so um, starting all of them would require a lot of resources but if you only need to test your movie service and you know that your movie service requires some database let's say Elasticsearch and uh, it talks to the notification service to verify your credentials then perhaps you don't need to start the whole Netflix you only need to start Elasticsearch because that's your database that's what you would want to use during your service um, during your test and then you need to start something that would talk quack and uh, do everything else as authentication service not necessarily authentication service because authentication service itself may bring five other databases two more caches and five other services depending on how your uh, graph of dependencies look uh, looks like but in fact, you could just start something that would uh, talk the same protocol, let's say HTTP protocol. And you may also want to add some contract testing to confirm that um, when you talk to notification service, your assumptions in your tests about your request are uh, 
align it with how it is defined in the protocol of uh, the authentication service. And then your test becomes something that you, you can run on your machine. And not only you can run on your machine, it becomes something that you can run on every code change you're making. So that you write some code and then you run your test and this test will be running in an environment that is as close to production as possible without having to start Kubernetes or what's not for your production environment to test it. Well, let's switch to you, Sergey. Who influences the way that you work? Name a CEO, CTO, an architect, really any person. Name a person you look up to and why. First, it's my co-founder, Richard. I learned a lot from him. We never had a chance to work with him uh, the same company. We always worked uh, different companies and now it's our first attempt at uh, working together, not just collaborating on project, on open source project. But apparently uh, I have so much to learn from him. And I'm not only talking about some, I don't know, soft skills aspects because He's from England, he's from London, and you know, like there is a lot you can learn from these folks. But uh, also on technical side of things, on running company, on everything, I'm so glad that uh, he, he got convinced to join me as a co-founder because it took me many months to convince him that he should quit Skyscanner and start the company together with me. And it wasn't an easy task because he has uh, kids, a family and everything. Then. Um, our investors and advisors, um, we spent uh, or we went an extra mile to uh, ensure that our investors aren't just someone with money, but someone with knowledge and experience, someone who would be motivated with their money to share their experience with us. We of course also have advisors and uh, these are intentionally there to um, give us advices um, because they have their uh, own compensations for that. But it's great to have uh, investors who help you uh, with questions that uh, you sometimes would not even expect them to, uh, to, to be helpful with, but you just know that you are in the right, uh, in the right company, in the right family of people, I would say. Um, and we realized how helpful it is for us because before starting the company, before closing our uh, investment round, we had certain worries about how VCs work. And we all know some horror stories about uh, VC-backed companies uh, who were pushed towards uh, monetization and getting the most revenue out of uh, products. Um, and you, you understand why, because they have their own motivation, like I know, return of return of investment and other things uh, are important. And of course they are, uh, otherwise we would not be here. Um, but on the other hand, picking the right investors really helped to start. And uh, when we started talking to uh, our potential investors for our seed round, uh, we discovered that apparently some of them uh, and actually many of them, many of uh, venture, venture capitalists are not only great business people, but just great people in general. You just enjoy talking to them. You finish your call with them motivated and energized as opposed to be drained by someone who would be I know, pressuring on you for some financial topics. And uh, this is really helpful. This is, I don't know if, I don't know how many 
potential startup uh, founders are uh, listening to this podcast, but I would say that going an extra mile, finding the right investor is a major contributor to the success of your company because your ideas, uh, like they will change 10 times, 100 times, gazillion of times, but uh, the right investor will help you uh, changing them and will help you uh, be help you follow the right direction. Well, we talked about a mistake, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? We started our company pretty late. Uh, we gave, uh, gave it a go uh, after the project being uh, zero for six years. And uh, it was successful for I hope uh, four years, uh, or at least it feels like uh, four years ago, it got some traction, like real traction. And um, when you start something that late, you're getting a lot of questions like, why now? Why not three years ago, four years ago, when you saw that uptake? And uh, you, of course, have an explanation for everything, or maybe it wasn't just the right moment for you to start. But I do feel that um, some projects uh, could be more successful or when it comes to commercial, uh, commercialization of, uh, let's say, open source project. It could be more successful if they uh, were commercialized early. Um, also to match the expectations. But in our case, I think we are pretty well aligned with the expectations uh, on the open source versus products and everything. But um, it just helps. It just helps uh, to start something when you see this, uh, I don't know, hyper growth as, a, as opposed to just the rest of the market catching up with the solution that you already created. So if we if we were a bit more um, ready to start the company, let's say two years ago or three years ago, I believe it would be easier for us, uh, not to mention that we would hire more people uh, or not like we would hire people back then and we would be more successful maintaining uh, some of the community contributions we were receiving. I'm not saying that we have a problem right now because test containers is extremely popular, but on the other hand, I think we took too long to convince ourselves that now is the time to start the company for uh, the project. And uh, the motivation for starting the company can be can vary like it can be just something uh or it can be money you just want to earn a lot of money but in our case uh our main motivation was to take it to the next level to make task containers something officially supported to stop to stop telling uh something that is uh like one of the most painful things you have to say as a maintainer sorry we don't have time for that we maintain it in our spare time, and unfortunately, we don't have capacity to handle this feature or this request or uh, this conversation, something like that. And if we started the company three years ago, let's say, um, who knows how it would go because uh, we didn't have the experience we had now, but uh, on the other hand, uh, we had more capacity to um, handle everything. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? You wouldn't be where you are right now if it wouldn't have been for how you started. But I do, that's why I asked that question. Because there are things like, ah, if I knew what I knew now, I, I probably would do things differently. Well, last question, Sergey. So you're getting on a plane 
and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? My first advice, because I really struggled being short uh, as seen in this episode, I guess. But um, like my first advice I would give is to not be afraid and to not underestimate what uh, he or she uh, has built. Because there aren't many great companies out there, if you think about it. I mean, successful? Yes. Great? Maybe. Um, And uh, when you start exploring services for a particular domain you want to use, you always discover that uh, none of them are ideal. Some of them are perfect, some of them are great, but uh, none of them are ideal uh, and exactly what you need. So when you think about it, you realize that if you focus on the right thing, if you know that what you're building will be, first of all, will will have the quality you wanted to see as a user yourself, but also if it's something uniquely well built, then you'll be fine. And that's something that you need to explain to to anyone you would talk to uh, about your business when you will be selling your business because you have to sell like your first sales that you're making as a founder is you're selling your idea um, and ideally not just you but uh, together with someone because it's just impossibly hard to do it alone but having more confidence in what you're doing always helps not only because you look you look more confident meaning that people will be more willing to let's say invest into your company or use your product at early stages or something but also it helps yourself um, just realizing that okay i'm doing something important something big here and uh, if i myself is not confident about it then why would anyone else be so you have to be confident about uh, the thing you're creating that's great advice. Well, Sergey, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Atomic Jar and Test Containers. Thank you so much, Noah. I really enjoyed the conversation. Some interesting topics were raised uh, I wasn't asked before. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to 10 bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.